Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is December the 5th, 2011. This is episode 796 of the Survival Podcast. Had a little numeric uh, mistake that uh, car- almost carried over one more time there. But this is episode 796. And today I'm going to talk to you about the future of the Survival Podcast. I've had a lot of questions coming from the audience. Some of those I'll try to address today as I go through this about kind of where we're going, how many guest spots do we really need to do a week, things like that. And not that anybody really doesn't like the guests, but, you know, are we going to get back to listener feedback shows, listener call shows? And, and, and the, the reality is absolutely. And uh, But some other things, and some bigger things, and some core message value things that I want to make sure that we don't lose, especially because, and, and part of why I'm doing this is there's really two groups I'm speaking to today uh, that are trying to speak right to your hearts. And one group are the people that found us like this week or this month. And maybe you went back and listened to some older episodes, but a lot of the things that I take for granted that people that have listened to this show for a year or more already know about me and already know about my goals and my, 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 my hopes for you, uh, don't know. The other group are the people that do know that stuff. The people that have been here a year, two years, three years listening to this show that remember, uh, episode, uh, number one. And actually listen to episode number one within a couple weeks of when it was published. And for those people, I want to make sure that you realize we're not going away from anything. So we'll talk about that and a lot of other really cool stuff and my plans for 2012 and my big concerns for our future and all kinds of stuff like that in just a minute. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is... Silverandgoldshop.com. That's the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont there who always does a good job of taking care of her customers, which of course are also our members of our community. You know, I think silver and gold belong in your investment portfolio. I really do. I think that when you look at your total net worth, your total net asset value, that you should be somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10% of silver and gold in that total value. And you should do that as an insurance uh, policy against complete collapse of the economy. And it's not something I think is highly likely to happen tomorrow, but I think it's something we may have to deal with. And that's why I keep the number conservative. But I also want you to think about this. When I say that, I'm including things like if you have a house and you actually have $100,000 of true equity, not fake equity that your banker told you you have in that house, then that's part of your net worth. So there's five to $10,000 in silver should go along with that that net worth as well. So it's not just the cash. I will tell you this, silver and gold goes up and down all the time. That doesn't mean run out tomorrow and buy you know, 10% of your net worth in gold tomorrow morning. I think that might be a mistake. It might not be. It depends on when you're listening to this. Are you listening to it the day I recorded it or four weeks from now? You know, and, and the price of gold has changed. What I think makes the most sense for people is to add small amounts of silver and gold to what you're doing over time. And a great place to put some diversity into that, get some really cool stuff and get great service and always be taken care of really, really well is Silver and Gold Shop. 
and Mary Beth Maidmont. So check out silverandgoldshop.com today. Next up today, Chef Keith Snow at harvesteating.com. Now, I talk about all kinds of really cool stuff that you can grow. Uh, we talk about CSAs, and you go there, and then he hand you this big giant Armenian cucumber or something like that, and you think, well, what do I do with all this stuff? What do I do with nanking bush cherry? Uh, what do I do with wolfberry? What do I do with all this crazy stuff Jack talks about growing and buying and cooking and improving your health with? Well, you go over to Harvest Eating. Chef Keith Snow teaches you how to cook seasonally and locally and does a really great job with everything that he has going on over there. And you come away understanding that cooking is as much a life skill as knowing how to make a bow drill in a fire. Because we make the fire so we cook the food, right? So get over to HarvestEating.com today, and I'll tell you what, one of the things you want to make sure you have in your you know, spice and herb drawer is Chef Keith's steak seasoning. Best stuff I've ever put on a steak in my life. It's probably the only thing I've used to cook steaks with since I found it. That's how awesome it is. So if nothing else, get yourself some of that today. All right, next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And Survival Podcast is now featured on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network five days a week uh, on their streaming feed along with some other really great homestead and survival and preparedness podcasts. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, you get a bunch of free ebooks, you get a bunch of great stuff, and you support the show at 20 cents an episode. But right now, right now, if you use the discount code SNOW, you can get your first year for 30 bucks. Uh, and if you are military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, email me details of your service. I will give you your own discount code. I'll tell you, it's not as good as the deal we have right now, but the difference is this deal for the military, law enforcement, uh, Peace Corps members is uh, you can use it on any membership, not just annual, and it applies to your recurring renewals as well. It's a permanent discount, so it's a better deal long term. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. You know... Here's some of the stuff that I, 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 here's how I feel. I've gotten some feedback from people lately that are like, well, I didn't like this guest or I didn't like that guest. Folks, if I bring guests on, you're going to have some you don't like. And I have to tell you this, for every one of you out there that doesn't like guest X, there's 20 people that love them. And then you turn around and you like guest Y and, and 20 other, you know, 20 other people with you. And then one guy doesn't like guest Y. So when I bring in guests, it's not just going to be me and I'm going to let my guests talk. And sometimes they're going to say things that I don't agree with. And I'm going to, when I even rebut that, I'm going to do it very gently because I don't bring a guest on for a debate. I bring a guest on for their viewpoint. And if you think they're wrong and I think they're wrong, then maybe we won't have them back again. Maybe we'll challenge ourselves to learn things, but you know, that's, That's part of, of, of having a show like this. I've also had people say, you know, are we going to get back to the listener feedback shows, listener call shows? Yeah, and I want to tell you what happened. Um, we were like out of guests. We, we had, we were just like running out of guests. And I'd gotten to this rhythm where I was doing the, the, you know, the, the shows I usually do on Monday, which are the feedback shows, which I know we're not doing today, but this is important. That's why I want to do a show like this. So you guys know where we're going and what we're doing. I feel like you guys are as much the show as I am. You guys own this. So that's why we're almost like a shareholders meeting today is the way to look at this. But anyway, so I get into this role where we're doing the feedback show, guest, uh, standalone Jack show, guest, and then on Friday we're doing, uh, the listener call shows. And that, that rhythm is working really well and everything's churning and all of a sudden all the guests fall out. And I don't have as many individual standby shows prepared because I've got this new format and it's working great. So I put out a call for guests and I put out a post. And holy crap, but like 4 billion people want to be on the show. So we, we book a bunch of people and we just fill them up two by two throughout the weeks. Then we start hearing from people like Matthew Stein, best-selling author, Rob Wolf, best-selling author. And we realize that we can get some of these higher and harder to pursue guests onto the show. Joel Saladin, 
I mean, you guys realize that in December, Matthew Stein, Joel Salatin, uh, and Rob Wolf will all be on the Survival Podcast. It's crazy. They're all going to be on a show I started with a, with a little recorder three and a half, four years ago in my car when I was nobody. And, and now we have three people like of that caliber in one month. It's insane. So when you get guests like that, you don't push them out till January and February. You work them in. So when we backfill a few guests, two or three guests in one month, All of a sudden, bam, it's it's full up. And then I always do this every year. You guys that have been around know this. I shut the business down on Christmas Eve, and I open the business back up on New Year's Day. And I take that time, and I spend it with my family. I spend it in meditation. I spend it in planning mode. I spend it clearing my thoughts. I spend it cleansing my mind from the four billion things a day that are running through it. I completely unplug. I go on a complete media fast. Unless the world ends, I won't know what the hell's going on for a week. And I spend that time centered. And if you can do it, if you can work it out, it's what I recommend that everybody does. And I've not just done this since I've had the Survival Podcast for years, even when I was just an employee and I had to use vacation time to do it, when I was a traveling salesperson and had to use vacation time or just take the hit of not being out on the road for those days, I've always, for as long as I've had a family to spend that week with, closed down for that week. And I actually picked it up from the industry that I was in. So what that did to December was really jam up December because it's a week missing anyway. Then we look at January, February, and I've got two public appearances where I'm out for a week, and I have to do all the guest stuff in advance so that I have shows for you when I'm away. I'm going to do some podcasting from the road as well, but, you know, I'll tell you what, I can only do so much of that when I'm on a plane. So it's actually, if I go somewhere for a week and I'm there for a week, it's pretty easy to podcast from the road. More on that in a bit. But if I fly into a place on a Thursday and fly back on a Monday, it's very difficult, and it's eaten up my Thursday, my Friday, and my Monday. Right, and it, it, then I got to get the dogs out of being boarded and everything else. So uh, we've had to jam up uh, December heavily, and we've got January fairly full, and we're booking in February. But and I'm kind of skipping ahead on my outline here, but I'm going to limit my guests in 2012 to two guests a week, absolute maximum. So what that means is we'll probably book. Four to five guests, leaving one open spot for one person uh, that we have to work in comes along. If we have like a, you know, Jeff Lawton, I'm trying to get on the show. So if Jeff Lawton wants on the show, man, I'll, he's in Australia. If I have to come in at 2 a.m. to interview him, I'll do it, right? So there are people like that. So we're going to try to leave some room and try to make some of our other guests maybe be a little bit flexible. Like if we get close to the end of the month, can we move you up? That type of thing. All right, so so I'm going to push the guest back, and I'm going to cap it at two. And if we do three in a week, well, then we're just carrying one forward to the next week. And, and that's what we're going to do going forward. And that way we can get back to the, 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 the format that I thought was working really well. And I think everybody else thought that format was working. We have two shows a week with the listeners heavily involved. We've got one where it's just me teaching something, and then we've got two great guests. And if we go to a week where we end up with one guest instead of two, and you get two week, two days of me just on, on some subject, that's great. And we probably need that. You know, maybe we even need to cap the guests at like four a month. And maybe it's one a week. I don't know. I'd love to hear from you today on your thoughts with that. The thing is, when I cap guests, if I cap it at something like four, that means that people have to wait a long time to get on the show. So we have to think about whether, you know, maybe we don't cap it at four. Maybe we cap it at six. So that's two weeks with two guests and two weeks with one guest. I want to hear from you. This is your show, too. Let me know what you feel about that. 
But before I go further with the plans for it, I want to talk to you about the core messages that have built the TSP community and what those are if you've never heard them before or it's been a while since you've heard me speak about them because I think it's important. The number one message that I wanted to send to people when I took that little recorder for the very first time and started yelling and screaming at ass clowns that were in my way as I went down the highway at 75 miles an hour weaving in and out of traffic and yelling to you like a madman was you are not alone. I, and the reality was I was actually telling myself this. Because I was thinking, if I start telling people what I know, and I start sharing what I know, and I'm sharing what I'm doing, and I'm sharing my plans, and people say to me, We're, we want to hear this, if a thousand people showed up, and that was all it ever was, that was enough at that point for me. Because that's what I wanted to know, that I wasn't alone. So I started out screaming to you, you're not alone. And you guys came back, and you said, yeah, we know, we're here, and you're not alone either. And that made everything else possible. It took a knowledge, and I already knew it, but it took a confirmation of what I knew. That there were thousands of people that wanted a better way. That wanted to relearn the old skills. That wanted to put them back to use in a modern way. That wanted to be prepared for disaster, but not expect it. It took hearing that my America in my heart was still there. And then it took a realization that that America that I believed in wasn't really America, it was human. And that that human spirit existed all throughout the world. And when I started hearing from people from, you know, from Vietnam, from Puerto Rico, from Australia, from New Zealand, from the UK, from Ireland, from, from uh, Brazil, when I started hearing people all over the world come back with that same message, that empowered me to go forward. And I think it built a community that many of you also needed to hear that. You needed to know that. Because whenever you talked about preparedness to somebody, you got one of two reactions. They thought you were a tinfoil hat loon, or next thing you know, you're talking to the tinfoil hat loon. They're like, oh yeah, man, and it's going to be Armageddon. And you're like, no, dude, this is not what I meant. Right? So you, you, you're you sitting in this middle where like everybody thinks you're a freak, and then everybody else is just apathetic, or there are the freaks. And you go, I don't want to be part of the freaks. And then when you found out, hey, there's thousands of us, this community was built because it wasn't an existing community that we tried to pilfer from other people. We didn't go to the other forums and boards and stuff like that and try to get business for Survival Podcasts. We built it as we found each other. And you're not alone. And there's lots of people just like you out there. And if, if you don't take that away from any given show, if you don't feel like there's other people like me out there, then I've left something out that day, and I apologize for every day that's ever happened. You should never leave this show thinking I'm the only one, or it's just me and Jack. You should leave the show knowing there's thousands of people that think just like we do. The next one is what you do matters. And it's the one that I've said to you over and over again. I made it one of my core tenets. I made it the 10th tenet when there were only 10. And now there's 12. And there's, it's the 12th tenet. It's the last one because it's so damn important. Nothing is as important as what you do for yourself in your life to make a difference for you and your family. Nothing. There's no amount of food you can store. There's no amount of backup power you can create. There's no amount of anything you can buy or purchase or own or possess that matters as much as what's in your heart, your mind, and your soul and what you're willing to do to keep your family safe and to keep your family happy, too. Because it's not just doom and gloom, right? It's not what it's all about. It's about, you know what, I've been doing this for almost four years now, and guess what? The world ain't in yet. See, I told you it wasn't going to happen, Right? I didn't say it wouldn't ever happen. I said I think some pretty bad shifts are coming that are going to roll over people. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But basically, the life you've known has gone on. It's gotten harder and tougher in a lot of places. 
Unemployment sucks. Wages suck. Companies are making millions of dollars, and the average person is not not part of that in a lot of ways. Right? But this isn't Occupy Wall Street either now, is it? What we do matters. We're not looking to somebody else for the solution. We know the solution is within. And how we live and what we do are the most important things that are going to affect our lives going forward. Every day, some piece of that should be in the show. You should understand a little bit more that your how great your power is in your own life. You should realize the truth that the cancer patient that does whatever the doctor says is more likely to die than the cancer patient who asks every question in the book five times and makes the doctor explain it, even when the two patients do the same thing, because the second one knows what they do matter and they fight for their life. And you can fight for your life in a lot of ways. Sometimes you're fighting for your quality of life and the quality of your children's lives. What you do matters in all of those things. The next one is to understand what you are, a human being. And this is one that's a lot more subtle. And it's something that I think a lot of people would go, duh, of course I'm a human being. I learned that in biology class, right? Um, no, you probably didn't because they didn't teach you what being a human being was. Let me tell you what being a human being is not. Um, waking up in the morning hating what you do, getting into a car, spending half an hour to an hour or more in that car, angry that you're in the car, stuck, and maybe least grateful that I'm there with you to talk to you like I am right now, if you happen to listen to one of the many people that listen to me that way because you're tired of talk radio, um, to get to work, to spend your entire time in a box. That's what a cubicle is. It's a box. It doesn't have a lid. It's still a box. Uh, have to ask if you go pee. Some of you are that bad. Some of you aren't. Uh, but have to explain everything that you do. Be watched over by somebody else like you are a child. Perform a task that you could probably do in half the time. If they would give you full-time pay for half-time work, you would probably do a better job, and you'd be more efficient, but have to stay there all day long. Go back home in the dark and have arguments with your family because you're miserable. Uh, that's not human. That's not being human. We are behaving in a remarkably non-human way in our society today. Going outside and feeling the grass on your feet when it's warm enough to do that, I know it's cold a lot of places, including here right now, uh, that's human. Breathing the fresh air, that's human. Enjoying your family, enjoying each other, enjoying your life, that's human. Doing what you mo most want to do is human. And I know a lot of people get like, cringe when you say, well, do what you most want to do, and they think, oh, well, what would happen to society if we all did that? We'd be a hell of a lot happier. That's what would happen. If everybody did what they most wanted to do, we'd be a hell of a lot happier. Because, no, people wouldn't be out stealing from each other and raping in the streets and everything. If they all did what they most wanted to do. People engage in these type of activities because of fear and because of anger and because of hatred and because of envy. And what does your government do? Your government constantly builds inside of you fear and anger and envy and hatred of your fellow man. So we have to decouple from government if we're going to be human. It's not human to expect 600-odd ass clowns in D.C. to solve your problem that you have at your house. That's not how human beings interact. That means that they have control. That means you've, you've bequeathed your control, at least mentally and emotionally and spiritually, to people that are across the country from you that don't give a damn about you in the first place. That's not behaving human. When we go out and we stick our hands into the earth and we smell the earth and we feel the earth and we pull food from it and we feed ourselves, that's human. When you look at your kids and you think, I am so grateful that they're here. Let me play with them. That's human. 
If you don't think that's survival, how many people die of stress-related illnesses every year in the United States? See, survival's not just about, you know, the modern version of the Redcoats are coming, right? Survival's about tomorrow you wake up alive. And if you wake up dead, you don't wake up and you failed the first test of surviving, to be alive. How many people have heart attacks due to stress? How much of this stuff do you think I'm talking about today contributes to that stress? When I lost all the weight that I lost after I left that world, people said, well, how much of it was this paleo diet? How much of it was stress reduction? And my answer was yes, in reality, because the paleo diet includes the removal of the stress. But yes, the stress is a huge factor. It's a huge factor in being able to do what I love now, to bring more passion to it than ever before. And to feel good about making a difference in people's lives. We've got to become human again. And however that works for you. And that doesn't mean that you go home and say, Honey, Jackson, I need to be human. And my job's not human because I live in a cube at work and I'm going to quit my job. Because that's dumb. right? You have to find your own way to take control back. But strive to be human. To be innately human. To behave like a human. Not like a flipping gerbil on a wheel. Society has been built to put you in a gerbil wheel. The thing is, the wheel doesn't turn the gerbil. The gerbil turns the wheel. You're the gerbil. Get out of the wheel. Just get off. The wheel won't turn unless you run in it. Gotta remember that. Act like a human, not a flipping gerbil. Next one is preparedness is a virtue. You know, I started talking at the beginning about how a lot of times you reach out to people, you try to talk about this, and you either find the complete freak job, or people think you're the complete freak job. It didn't used to be that way. And I'm not talking about a long time ago. I'm talking about like the 1970s. When I grew up in Pennsylvania, everybody had tons of food stored in their basement. You know why? It was cool down there and it was a good place to put the food. You had to do something with it. Where'd the food come from? They grew it. And then they had a great big garden. And then there was all this extra food in like August and September when the big harvest came in. And you couldn't eat it all at once. So you gave some of it away. And then grandma or mom or somebody chopped it up and canned it or dehydrated it, did something with it. You know, and kids went down and cut all the garlic and hung the garlic and onions up. And you put it down in the cellar. And you know what people thought when you said how much you put away this year? Good for you. That's great. And when you had your kids doing it, you know what they said? That's great, Jack. That's what I told them. That's what I used to tell my dad. That's great that your kid is learning like that. Good for you. They told my old, my old grandfather, Biff, Andy, you know, Andy, that's great you got that kid working in your garden. It was virtuous. Do you know why? Because you were taking care of yourself and that was considered American value. Do you remember the situation comedies of the 70s? Right? And then the, like the, the docu, the dramas, you know, the, like the, the daytime soap, not the soap operas, but I don't know what you call it, but like the family television of the 70s, even the early 80s. Do you know what every male in one of those shows would do when they came on hard times? And somebody would say something like, well, we can get help from here, or we can get from the government. Or he would stand up and say, oh, hell no, this family doesn't take charity. I'll get us out of this. I'll fix this. Where'd that go? Do you know when you can stand up and say, you know what, we're not going to take charity? I'm going to fix this? When you have breathing room. The reason so many people today end up on food stamps and welfare and, and all these other assistance programs is because they had no buffer. So when they ran into the first road bump, there was no place else to go. And hell, they make it easy. And then they send you a message. It's your money in the first place. You paid it in. Why not take it back out? Even when most of the people taking it out never paid as much in as they're going to take out. But if you have a buffer, 
If you have preparedness as a virtue in your life, you have time before you fall back to those things. You have time to be personally responsible for yourself. Preparedness is virtuous. That's something you should learn a little bit more about in every episode of the show. The next one is that times may or may not get really tough. I actually think that there's almost no way out of a major economic depression in the United States today. I think there's almost no way out of the currency being rebased and a massive inflationary spike taking place when that happens. I, I think that it's too, it's too far gone. There's too much debt. There, I don't think there is a way out. And I'm also a honest enough man to tell you, but I could be wrong. The other part of that is, and I, I don't think I'm wrong, by the way, but I could be. But the other side of that is when. So I look at this and I go, 2015, 2020, somewhere in there, maybe sooner. But God, 2020, and, and we, we're still playing this game and getting away with it? I just can't see it. I could really be wrong about that. Um, if you looked at things in 1985, it was, uh, th there's, I can definitely make a bigger case for it now. But we didn't know all the things we know now back then. And in 1985, to think that we would have ever got to the year 2000 without the whole thing completely falling apart would have seemed almost unconscionable. It was like, there's no way. Look at the debt. Look at So who knows how long these ass clowns can keep this thing going. So times may not get that tough or much tougher than they are for quite a long time. But they may get really tough tomorrow. And the survival-minded individual, the modern survivalist, really needs to think about that in everything that they do. Because we have to plan both for success and failure in our lives. The last one is there's a lot to be optimistic about. No matter what happens, we're not going away. Right? This, this whole world's going to end and flush down a giant cosmic toilet type thing or whatever. It ain't going to happen. You know, Thor's hammer or comet hits the earth. And if it does, doesn't matter anyway. Your troubles are gone. Right? Well, Jack, I have people all saying, well, what would you do if something like that, like a comet killing, you know, uh, earth killing comet, like got the dinosaurs or whatever came and was just going to wipe out all life on earth? I'd buy a nice six pack of beer. I'd sit with my family under a tree and I would be thankful for everything that we had in our lives and I would look forward to the next realm because there's nothing to be done at that point. So anything less than that, I'm planning on still being here and I'm planning on being optimistic about it. Because I'll adapt, improvise, and overcome in every situation and make my life as great as I possibly can. And I know that there's a lot of really good people out there working hard to change things. I know there's a lot of good people out there working really hard and they're really smart people and they're evolving technology. I know that for every person out there that's an ass clown turd, there's 10 really good people trying to pull things the other way. And I believe that as a species, we'll do that as humans. It may take a long time. And the people that are lesser in number have greater power because of the economic situations. But that only works so far until people figure out the truth for themselves. When they start to realize what they do matter, they become much more powerful. And money is not no longer able to keep a chain on, on people once they learn the truth. So I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. Um, I also want to talk real quick about another thing that I've been doing. And why I'm doing it. I've had some questions about this. Not so much from people that are listening to the other show, but from people that are just observing that I'm doing it and wondering, is it going to take away from TSP? And the answer is absolutely. It will not take away from the Survival Podcast. But I have another show called Five Minutes with Jack that's on business and business principles and building a business online. 
I'm doing that because, number one, I get countless questions every week at the Survival Podcast about a business. I'm doing this. What do you think of that? This is my website. Will you look at it? Tell me what you think. Blah, blah, blah. And by the way, I never do that you know, because what I think of your website doesn't really matter. Uh, what you do is what matters. But I'm doing the show because of what I just said. There's a lot to be optimistic about in the world. And people that are building something of their, their, their own, when they get out of a pure employee mindset, they're a lot more optimistic. And I believe that a lot of the solutions that we need in our world today can't be done by employees. They have to be done by entrepreneurs. They have to be done with somebody that has the freedom and the time to do it. And whether the two are directly related or indirectly related, I don't care. So if the guys like, you know, uh, what's the name, Trevor, that did Pedal to Pedal, and the entrepreneur and the, the, the project fit together, so it's an environmentally friendly business and it's helping solve a problem, then great. If the person is going to sell samurai swords and automate that fully and have lots of surplus cash and then spend their time working on a solution on a, you know, for, for free type situation or just making a difference in the world or contributing, then great. But I'm going to tell you that employees don't make that happen. Entrepreneurs do. It's always the entrepreneur. Even the person who doesn't make a dime from it, they have to have a life set up where they have enough freedom and time to do it, and then they end up running this thing like a business, even if they don't make a profit. Right? When you look at some of the work people do as relief workers around the world, teaching people to grow their own food, for instance, a lot of those people don't make a dime doing it. You know, Maybe they just make enough to survive while they're there, and that's it. But they do it like an entrepreneur because they put themselves into it. They don't check with somebody else before they make a decision. They make a decision. They live with the consequences of decisions. And when it's a mistake, they don't do that again, and they change. That's an entrepreneurial mindset. And I've said this before, but it's the best way I can describe it. A lot of the disasters that we're looking at coming our way in this world are a lot like a house fire. We can say, okay, if the house burns down, we need to make sure some of the stuff's not in the house. We need to make sure we have insurance. We need to make sure that we all have a way to get out of the house. We need to know how to call the fire department. And all the things that we do after the fire occurs. But the smart person says, you know, it would be a great idea if the house never caught on fire in the first place. So maybe we use the right building materials and we retrofit some things in and we put in some monitoring devices so if a fire is going to start, we have a chance to put it out before the whole damn house burns down. You know, maybe we have certain procedures and protocols and we don't do things like if we're smokers, we don't smoke in the house. Maybe if we use a fireplace, we make sure it's cleaned every year before we start using it again. On and on and on and on. And it actually turns out that if you try not to burn a house down, less houses burn down. So we can solve a lot of our problems in this world and prevent the complete collapse that we're all afraid of if we'll take action. To me, it's the entrepreneurs that take that action. And that's why I'm doing Five Minutes with Jack. It's not just another business unit for me. I haven't put a dime of revenue into it yet, and I sure could if I wanted to. I, I really could. So I'm not saying I never will. I mean, if you build something to a point where you can turn some money on out of it, then you have more money to do more good stuff. So I might. Who knows? I don't know. But I know that I'm going to take my drive to the office every day and do that little show. And it's at jackspearco.com. And uh, I'm going to put it out there. And then that way people can use it however they choose to. But don't email me and ask me to consult with you on your business. I'm not in that business anymore. I don't enjoy that business. I enjoy what I do here. This is my first love when it comes to business. And it always will be. Um, 
I also want to talk a little bit, though, about, because I've got a lot of people saying, you know, you're not covering the hard-hitting, dangerous stuff anymore. You're not going deep into the threats anymore. And, you know, are, are you backing off of that? And, and, and some level, in the last month, I have. Part of it's just been the guest volume. But in the past month or two, you know, when you research this stuff every day, and every single day, there's another reason the economy eventually has to fall on its ass. Every single day you see evidence that people are slipping in their, in their, 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 their class structure and, and these other things that I'm concerned with. It starts to, it starts to weigh on you and it becomes difficult to be optimistic. And I figure if it's that way for me and if I'm constantly talking about it, how optimistic are you going to be if you're listening to me every day? So once in a while, I just want to pull away from that and just say, look, here's action items you can do for your life. They're going to make it better today, even if nothing ever goes wrong. Plant a garden, fool. You'll eat better. You'll cut your grocery bill. I don't care if you ever have to live off it or not. You'll be a happier person with a garden. So I'll talk about something like that. But there are some things. And, and here's the thing. Even that happy, homesteady type thing just dovetails into all of these things. But I want to talk to you about my seven biggest concerns for the future. Number one is definitely the economy. Uh, it's the one that I see so many other things. In fact, I'm going to make one change to my notes here, and I'm going to make this eight. But the economy, first and foremost, and, and part of the reason I put the economy at the top of the list, and I, I would actually tell you that the rest of these things are no particular order. I, I'm equally concerned about them all. But the reason the economy goes at the top of the list is if any one of these other things happens, it just makes the economy worse. In fact, the, if any one of the other things happen, then the economy's toast, at least for a time. Uh, when I watched uh, how Cuba survived peak oil, I saw for the first time a true path to what we would do if it happened to us. But I also want you to understand that their economy in the first year declined by 36%. Declined by 36%. The misery we're having in the United States now is due to a 0% growth or a 1% or 2% growth. Not enough. That's how much misery is being caused by having, you know, 1% growth instead of 4. So what was what would 36% decline look like? And that's what we can expect with a lot of situations or worse for our economy. What would happen if everything stayed the same but the value of money just declined by 36% at 36% inflation in one year? And I know a lot of you that keep reading about Weimar Republican all think that that's just not that big a deal. And, oh, my God, Jack, you're so underplaying it. We're going to be paying $5 million for a Coke or something like that. No, not likely. Not likely at all. But something in the neighborhood of 20 to 30% of inflation during a currency rebasing? Let me show you how that works. Just so I can show you how that works right now. Let's say that you and your family right now earn a total of $100,000 a year. Okay, so then what you do is you now earn $70,000 a year. That's a 30% inflation rate. And you're still paying taxes and all, so you, you take it down to a $70,000 gross income, figure out how much you would get paid after all your other taxes and expenses, and maybe even take a little more because when this happens, they're going to tax us harder. They're going to do it. And then try to live on that. And what would that do to you? And those of you that have been listening for a long time and preparing the right way, you, you might go, I don't care. I'm not going to be happy about it. I'd like my other $30,000, please, but it's not really going to affect my life. If so, good. If not, you are the majority in America. They talk about the 99% with Occupy Wall Street. There's your 99%. 99% of people are completely, totally screwed 
with a 30% inflation spike. That's it. That's all it takes. They're done. They're out of their house. Or they're living like they're poor. Because they already have the money spent in advance due to debt. So economy number one. Right in with economy, downward class migration, which I, I see as an even bigger problem because it's already happening now. What I mean by downward class migration is you are upper middle, middle class, let's say. You're upper, upper middle class. You're in that $100,000 income uh, segment. And then all of these other things line up against you. Inflation, taxation, uh, wage erosion. So even though you were making that kind of money, you lose a job and now have to take one that pays less because you had to make some kind of a shift. And the growth opportunity that used to be there to continue to go up is gone. And all of these things add up. And the next thing you know, you're living... Instead of upper middle class, middle class. If you were at middle class, now you're living lower middle class. You're at lower middle class, you're living at the poverty level. Even though nothing really that dramatic appeared to happen in your life, this, this, this migration down is not typical. Because it's always been something that's happened to people. People have a great job, they lose a job, they get a crappy job, and for a time, they have to live at a lower quality of life, a lower standard of living, and they keep working really hard, and they either work their way up in this new area, or they get a job, back, you know, they just take it temporarily, or whatever it is. That's not a downward class migration, that's a temporary detour. Downward class migration was where it starts happening across the whole nation. We first start seeing it in the places with the biggest problems, like Detroit and Chicago. But then it starts to spread like a cancer throughout the entire country. And it happens so slowly that people don't even realize that their lives are being eroded by it until they wake up one day and realize they can't pay their debt. And then when they try to fix the problem, they realize how far they've slid. And it's very, very dangerous and it's very, very seductive. It's far more dangerous than just losing a job because it's happening to you while you don't even realize it. And next thing you know, you look at your children and think, I wanted the same thing for my children my parents wanted for me, for them to have a better quality of life than the one that I had. So my grandparents worked hard, and that made my, my parents better off. And they worked hard, and that made me better off. And I've worked hard, and it's not going to make my, my children better off. In fact, it may be the case that my children will never own a house as nice as the one that they grew up in. That's downward class migration. And it's not all bad. But it's all bad if we stay with business as usual. That's, that's a huge problem. If we, and you know, the movement's called the transition movement. And it's all about peak oil. And I think they go a little overboard with how serious the peak oil thing is, which I'll get to in a minute. I don't think it's not serious, but I don't think it's as fast as they say. But we need a transition movement that's all encompassing to understand that the world is changing. The population of the world is insane. The threats in the world are insane. The way we've been living is not sustainable. We need to move to a more sustainable style of life. Well, pff, folks, that's not easily done overnight. But what happens to people is this, this, this downward class migration occurs to them is they're forced to do it overnight because they didn't realize the disease was eating away at them for years. And this is systemic and it's national. And it's the one that I, I, I don't think there's any way for me to be wrong about. I think it has happened, it is happening, and it will continue to occur. And I was telling you, and I was using that term two years ago. It was about the first time I ever kind of put it to you that way. And now there's mainstream news articles out about it all the time. I'm not a futurist. I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not as Ron Hood. My, my, uh, my dearly, uh, departed friend used to call me Jack, Jack, or Spirko Domus is what he used to call me. Spirko Domus. That's not it. It's just, I just pay attention. 
I just pay attention to what's going on, and I don't let the clowns on the TV tell me what to think. I analyze all the things that are going on, and I think for myself. And that's why I saw this. The next one I just talked about, peak oil. But here's what I call it, long bell curve peak oil. And I think it's actually, again, it can be worse when things take longer to happen. Because we keep reassuring ourselves it's really going to be okay. All these people that are talking about how bad peak oil is going to be and how it's going to be honest like this. Well, um, they're about to start extracting oil in a lot of places in the United States that we've been saying they should extract oil from for a long damn time. And what the people in the peak oil will say, well, if we took all of that oil out and we had to use just that oil, then it would only run the, the uh, United States for about four or five years. But that's not all the oil. That's not all the oil that we're importing. That's not all the oil we're all reproducing domestically. That's a stupid statement. Let's look at it this way. If we're going to have a 10% shortfall, and that would run the country for four years, then then what what do we get out of, uh, of that kind of extraction? Well, if we just had to make up a 10% shortfall, we could that, that would take us for 40 years if we were only using 10% of it to make up the shortfall. Now, I think that's a little bit ridiculous in of itself. But even at having to make up a 30% shortfall, we're still looking at, what, 12 years, 13 years, something like that? So this extraction is going to, and then the tar sands extraction that's going on is massive. Now, are there environmental concerns because of those? Yes, definitely. But it's not going to stop the progress. So I think that we're definitely reaching a point globally where we're going to run, to a, run into a point where there is not enough oil to keep growing. But I think the, the, the curve at the top of the peak is a lot broader and longer, and how much damage gets done before we become the grips with reality. So that's another one that I have uh, a big concern about. The next one is climate shifts. And I've not crossed over to what I call the, uh, the global warming church, right? The, the people are making the planet warmer. Uh, but I do think we're creating deserts. I th do think that our agricultural practices are making our number one export topsoil. Uh, in a bad, we don't export it in a bag. We export it into the air, and it lands in our oceans. That's not good. I think we're creating deserts. I think we're creating salt flats, and I think we're deforesting a lot of areas, and that is going to change the climate. Um, one thing Matthew Stein brought up, and it's something I need to look into more, and I'm not sold on it, but the fact that uh, carbonic acid and how it affects pH levels of the ocean. Um, if it was as severe as some people say, I think everybody would talk about it. So um, I don't know. I don't know. That's something I need to look at and, and get more information on. If we are acidifying our oceans with carbon, then that could be an issue. I, I don't think it quite works out that way. I think we're doing a lot more damage because we're growing corn for biofuel in an unsustainable monoculture way, and we have a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico every year where all the toxins and nutrients flow out in, out of the Mississippi River into the Gulf. I think that is going to cause climate shifting. And here's the big thing about climate shifts. I don't think if we did everything in the perfect way that our problem with the climate would go away. I think if we lived in a you know Native American lifestyle or an eco-village lifestyle, everybody lived that way and the, the population of Earth was 25% of what it was and everybody sat around contemplating their navel for an hour a day and there was peace everywhere. I don't think climate shift would stop being a problem. There's this thing called the sun. It runs through cycles. Guess what? Sometimes it gets hotter here and sometimes it gets colder here. All this crap about, well, the ocean levels will rise. Half of where you walk today used to be under the ocean. We didn't do it. Continental drift. Polar shifts. There are all types of things that affect the climate. And generally speaking, these shifts in climate are slow if we measure them in human life cycles. But... 
they do start to change things. And if you, again, this is the problem. As things shift, we have a propensity in our modern society to just continue business as usual. That's where you get run over. Uh, agriculture failures go right in with climate shifts, go right in with the, 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 uh, the genetic modification, uh, the adaptation of pests, the continuing monoculture, salting the earth, deforesting the, the, the forests of the planet. And, and then when we add to it a growth in population and more food being necessary and we're not fixing the problem at a quick enough rate, agriculture is a huge concern of mine. The next one is water shortages and conflicts. I think that we are not far You know about blood for oil? Blood for water is not far off. It really isn't. You think people will go to war because they, they have to pay a dollar more a gallon for gasoline? They'll really go to war if they're not going to eat. And this is the, the, the seductive nature of the water shortage problem. Water shortages are not about you turn the tap on and no water comes out. That's what we always think. There'll be no water left. We'll all die. Ah, whatever. You know, there's plenty of water to drink, take a bath with, to get rid of your waste with in most of the world. There's plenty of it. There's not enough to continually water fields. It just isn't. And as we put more and more pressure on our fossil aquifers, That's going to become more critical and more understood. And there's already towns at the edge of these aquifers that have been pumping water out of them for decades, since the 50s, that have built their towns on growing cotton and corn and wheat. And guess what? Water's running out. Now, if you go to your sink and you turn the faucet on, water from the public utility, in most of the places anyway, some places not so much, water still comes out. But when you want to pump it out of the ground to water your crops because you need a few billion gallons this year, please, it's not there anymore. So that's a big, big concern for me. Global socialism is a huge concern for me, and it should be anybody who's got liberty, a liberty-minded uh, outlook in life, which should be every human being. Because part of being human, as I said earlier, uh, being important that we start being human is to be free. It is not human to live under the yoke of another man. That's slavery, not humanity. It's slavery, not humanity. And socialism is a state-enforced yoke. And you live under the yoke of many men. That's true slavery. And people would say, well, is that global government? Maybe, maybe not. doesn't matter. Socialism is evil no matter whether it's local socialism or global socialism. The reason I call it global socialism is it's a big movement. The disenfranchised generations coming up, They feel like they followed the rules and it didn't work. The Occupy Wall Street people are very, very susceptible to a socialistic message. The rich have too much, you should have some of what they do. It's very easy to convince somebody that's 24 years old that's a good idea. When they're $100,000 in the hole for a degree in some bullshit thing they're never going to get a job for, and they did what they were told, they're not an idiot, right? I'm talking to some of these kids. These people graduated with honors, right? These are A-B students. They didn't take 10 years to get a degree. They did it in four years or five years. And then they got out and they said, okay, and they followed the rules, and now they're economically screwed. And there's a million different ways that people feel that way. There's people that grew up and they learned to trade in the blue collar. You know, They grew up and they were going to, I don't know, mine coal in West Virginia, and then they shut the mine down. And now they're sitting in this little town and they don't know what to do with themselves. And all of those people, unless you give them something that, that, that tells them, hey, I'm in control of my own life, are very, very susceptible to this movement. I won't go any deeper. I'm already going to go long today and I could go for a long one on that. And then the last one is pandemic. 
Do you know some ass clown? Some ass clown Dutch scientist? You know what he just did? He used ferrets to increase the uh, communicable nature of the bird flu. Yeah. So he made a version of bird flu that would easily transmit from me to you. You know the highly lethal strain, H5N1? The one that like 60% of the people that get it die? But but the, the saving grace is, like if you have it and you hang out with me for a while, I'm probably not going to get it. Human-to-human transfer is very, very low. Yeah, he, he, he fooled around with it, played with it, and made it highly contagious. Isn't that a dumbass idea? That's that's bird flu. That's just one. And, and that happened in a laboratory. To believe that one of these leaps can't happen in nature is foolish as well. So pandemic is another big one, and all of them tie together. They're my big ones. Well, let's think. I want to talk to you about solutions today, though. What can we do about the future with all of these threats in it? The first thing I think is we can preserve skills, knowledge, and values. There's, there, there's, all of those things are in danger. That's why I worked with Nick Ledoux and we put together SaverSkills.com. Check that site out. It's a great place to learn about a lot of these skills beyond what we teach you here. And then the knowledge of how to use and implement those skills and just knowledge in general. There's a war against knowledge right now. They call it the educational system. Do you know that? The educational system is a war against knowledge. Because the educational system makes everybody the same. Everybody learns the same stuff. Everybody takes the same test. And then people stratify into achievement levels. A, B, C, D. All right? D, you passed, you're out of here. F, you keep going until you get a D. And everybody else just has this achievement level based on the same limited fixed amount of knowledge. Well, that's, that's a war on knowledge. Because what about all the stuff that gets left out? What about the stuff that the D student would be a master of if he had the freedom to investigate and learn it? So I'm not saying we get aware of all the schools. I know some of you think that's what I'm saying, but I'm not. But I am saying we need to, in our own lives, preserve skills and knowledge. And we need to preserve values. Like preparedness being a virtue, for one. Helping your fellow man for another. Somebody that has more than you isn't bad because they have more than you. You don't deserve Johnny to have what Tommy has just because Tommy has more. Tommy or his parents worked hard for it. They should get to keep what they have. That is a value. It's an American value. And this, this, this move toward global socialism is turning it on its head. I don't really care if they think that way in Egypt. right? Egypt can run Egypt's own life. They can fail with that model like every other country that's ever done it has failed. When it starts to happen here, which is supposed to be the one place where it doesn't happen, it starts to really bother me. And make no mistake about it, it is impossible, it is impossible to create a true socialistic system that's enforced by government if you have values and morals. Because it's not a value or a moral to take away from somebody else, to give to somebody else. It just isn't. And if you made a case, let's say, let's say you robbed a bank tomorrow. You went out and robbed a bank. And, um, you were sent to a, a trial, a jury of your peers, and you said, I robbed the bank. I did that. And they say, why'd you do it? Well, um, the bank that I had foreclosed on my house. Now they got money from the government for a bailout. And, uh, so they didn't help me like they were supposed to. So I went and took what they should have given me. They had more than me, so I took it back. Do you know what a jury of your peers would do? Send your ass to jail. You know what? The bank's wrong, but they should still send your ass to jail because you don't go steal from somebody else. Socialism is nothing more than legalized theft. And that's the reality. And if we preserve values, we don't have that. 
I also think one of the things that we can do, in spite of all of this stuff, is we need to believe in a better future rather than believing in false nostalgia. You know, there's so much of this, this, this waxing nostalgic today. Man, the 1950s, that's when America really had its core values in place. Really? We did? In the middle of the race wars? That's when we were at our finest hour? Really? You know? <laughs> Come on. Ah, oh, man, the 1930s. The Depression? Hello? McFly, right? Remember that movie? The old 80s movie? Oh, the 80s. Oh, the 80s. You know, I grew up in the 80s. Let me tell you something about the 80s. They sucked. Alright, flat out sucked. 70s, maybe not as much, but the 80s sucked. The 90s? I mean, where, where, where were we better off than we are today? Now, I think there's a lot of things we can learn from these different times. You know, we look at the 80s and we can see how, how grateful we should be for the internet. You know, there's a great movie called Pump Up the Volume. It was made in the late 80s, I think is when it was made. And it was about a kid that set up a pirate radio station. That kid wouldn't have to set up a private uh, pirate radio station today, would he? We'd be able to use the internet to get his voice out. We can look at the 50s and, and, and the family values that were there. And in spite of what I said about the racism, there were plenty of people that were white people on the right side of that issue. And, and honestly, if they hadn't been there too, we probably wouldn't have got through it when we did in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. To a point now where, it, to me, if you're still wrapped up in you, you know, the problems of racism, you're just living in a false reality. You know, when we have a black president, I think we pretty much have equal opportunity for everybody if you work hard enough. Plain and simple. But we wouldn't have got there if there weren't people of all colors on the right side of that debate. And there were. So we can learn from that. We can learn from growing the way our grandparents were. Our grandparents did not use Visa and MasterCard. We can learn from that, but there's, it's not as good as you think, right? The grass isn't that much greener 25, 50 years ago. There was a lot of tough things that were going on that people had to get through, and things that we take for granted today weren't even thought of yet. We have a really awesome future to build, and we need to get with building it instead of being wrapped up in 1955. That 1955 was never the way you think it was unless you're old enough that you were there. And even in that case, you have a tendency to lie to yourself. We all lie to ourselves about our childhood and our past and how things were different back then. The reality is things really haven't changed that much in the dynamic standpoint, but they've changed a lot in the opportunity standpoint. And the opportunities have gotten better. So we need to look toward the future if we want to build a better future. We also need to move to a system-based purchasing model. And what I mean by that is we need to think more and more about how can I purchase my energy for my lifetime versus my energy for this month. Energy for this month is an electric bill from the electric company. Energy for a lifetime is an off-grid system. And most of us can't transition completely, and most of us shouldn't. Some of the technologies aren't quite where they can be yet. So Some of the people that are doing it right now are in 10 years are going to go, damn, I wish I would have waited. It would have been less expensive and better. right? But that's always going to be the case with technology. But we need to start transitioning to that, at least in percentages. If we get transition to 30%, that's 30% I don't have to buy, And it's 30% I have forever. And we need to think more and more about that so that we're not living on an a la carte system. And that's with food. That's with security. That's with water. That's with sanitation. That's with all our survival needs. We need to move more to a system-based purchasing model. We also need to speak the truth about liberty daily. When, in our conversations with people, you don't even have to be political. And my side's better than your side to speak a message of liberty. The message of liberty is that we're all human beings. We all came here with certain inalienable rights, and those rights are protected, not granted, by our Constitution. 
That's it. And anybody that disagrees with that needs to find a new place to live because that Constitution ain't changed that much yet. That preamble's still there. And that's something we need to remember. Our Declaration and our Constitution, they didn't change. You can go read them. They're under a glass case in Washington, D.C., and you can go look at them. And if you haven't ever done it, you probably should because it's not the same when you read a PDF on the Internet. You need to understand that those words were penned in ink that was considered permanent and that we've taken the time and the effort to preserve those documents, that they matter. We need to speak the truth about liberty daily. We also need to be the first responders in a crisis, the real first responders. You know, the first responders of firemen, police departments, and all. You know, I, you know, I support those guys. I really do, uh, and I love them. But they can only be so many places at so many times. Uh, there, there's a limit to what any human being can do. But you can always be there for your neighbor. And as people that are prepared, when there is a crisis, we need to yes, make sure that. I'm okay, my wife's okay, my kids are okay, Let's, can we look after each other? Okay, great, everybody's here, everybody's safe, everybody's got enough to get by, great, now let's go see who we can help. Because that spreads the message of liberty, that spreads the message of preparedness, that spreads the message of skills, knowledge, and values. That's, that spreads the message of there is something to be hopeful for in the future. You want to see a society crumble? Take away hope in the future. Why do you think I'm so optimistic with you all the time? If I just told you how bad things were, we would just... It's self-fulfilling prophecy, folks. And with that, I want to just kind of finish up today with some of my plans for 2012. What are some things I'm going to do? Uh, number one, more public appearances. I already have three set up. And if you go to the website, survivalpodcast.com, again, the survival podcast or the survival podcast.com, and click on appearances, you can see my current scheduled appearances. And as I add more, I'll talk about them on the air, but I'm going to be in Montana, going to be in New Hampshire. Got some other stuff I'm working on right now. I might do something in Dallas this summer, uh, which will be a really cool thing. And, uh, a lot of other stuff that I've got in the works. And I just want to make sure that I can balance my public appearances with making sure I still do a good job on the show. Uh, and, and I'll talk about that more in a bit. Uh, I also am really thinking hard about sitting through a couple PDCs this year to get a different feel for, for and by PDC I mean permaculture design courses, and that will give me the freedom to do things and say it is permaculture, not maybe to certify others, but to say I'm teaching permaculture and legally qualified to do that, uh, even though I think I could probably go probably do a PDC design course and do a fairly good job of it with my knowledge already. Um, I I think that I want to sit through, and I'm probably going to go to Bill's place at Midwest Permaculture, uh, and I might do something in New England. Uh, can't remember that guy's name now, but the guy that I had on about the rice, I might go sit through his course as well, and I might do another one. And with that, and I'm doing a lot more research and development on my own, and I'm going to show you guys everything I'm doing at the house uh, with it. But I want to actually maybe develop an educational program around a concept I'm going to call warrior permaculture. No hippie bullshit, basically. Right, no contemplating your navel, because um, I keep hearing Paul Wheaton talk about how you know maybe we even need a new word, maybe permaculture. Because when you say permaculture to somebody, they think of a hippie compound. Well, the, the problem with that is that's not permaculture, right? To say that it's just like um, gardening. Well, if I say gardening, there's like a hundred different types of people you can think of that would have a garden, right? And some would be a hippie, and some would just be you know an old lady in the country. And some would be just a guy that needs a stress release, right? So gardening, even though hippies garden, we don't think of gardening as a hippie thing. Well, just because some hippies do permaculture doesn't mean permaculture is a hippie thing. 
Now, they're the people that we see the most, right? Running around in the bare feet in the mud and chanting or some kind of crap like that. But that's not what permaculture is. Permaculture is a system of design, designed to solve problems and to make culture uh, and humanity sustainable. It's survivalism. And I don't know that warrior permaculture is the right term for what I want to talk about, but it's the sentiment. It's the feeling. Because it's not about going away and you know, being a warrior and stealing your buddy's tomatoes and now it's, you know, come on. Right? But what it is is about understanding that it's a system to solve problems. And it's a system that we need to take seriously because it's been proven and it works. So that's one thing I want to do. Uh, next thing I want to do is even though I want to cap guests back to the two a week as we go into 2012, I want to probably do more with the regular guy, regular gal type guests. Uh, I find a lot of times some of the best interviews are not a best-selling author or they're not some well-known uh, person that's in another space or a business person or something like that. A lot of times the best interviews are just a lady that's been doing it at her house that wants to come on and talk about it. Uh, we had a great interview like that. Uh, sometimes it's, a, it's an electrical engineer like the one we just did with a, with a generator show where you know it's, he's not selling you a generator. He doesn't care if you buy one or not. Just a regular guy, a member of the community. And I find that the best guests of the show, even if they are someone that's active, right? Someone that is running a business in the space or someone that does have a website in the space or what have you, they're also community members. So they understand us. They understand where we're coming from. It's often difficult, I think, sometimes where I need to be doing a better job of my prep to interview a guest that's never listened to a single episode of the show. So I want more regular guy, regular gal guests, and if not that, I want more people that are listeners to the show. In fact, I'm going to start telling people when they inquire about being a guest on the show, here's five, here's five episodes of the show, go off and listen to them. When you've listened to them fully, come back and we'll schedule you. Because I want you to know who you're speaking to and who you're being interacted with and who, who you're being involved with. So we're going to try to do more stuff like that. Uh, also, I'm going to start doing a lot more podcasting from the road. Now, I want to explain what that's not going back to the mobile studio like I did in the beginning or like I'm doing now with 5 Minutes with Jack. Podcasting from the road, I simply mean if I'm going to go to Montana for a week and a half, I'm not going to shut down the business every time I make a public appearance like that. And I'm going to podcast from those locations and publish the show. So look forward to having podcasts that are a lot more interactive. And if I go to a place like that and I'm there with people that are part of the community, that's an opportunity for some of those regular gal, regular guy interviews and things like that. So podcasting from the road. Um, I also want to maybe, with the traveling that we'll be doing, is set up some stuff where maybe I get out and video what you're doing. Maybe I set up like uh, on a trip, like maybe I say, okay, anybody in this 200 mile radius that would, that would be interested in sharing what you're doing, I come out with my camera uh, and, and the camera woman and we sit down with you guys and talk about what you're doing and we film a few things and we put that together and we put that up on YouTube on the Survival Podcast channel. So I want to get out there and do more documenta documentarian type things with people because I'm going to show you everything that I'm going to do and that's the next one on my list. I'm going to show you everything that I'm going to do on my homestead, but you know my homestead is going to be limited by how much land I have, how it's orientated, what my goals are, the fact that we only have two people living there. I mean, we could literally produce too much to use, and I don't really want to go into the business of selling it. So I have to think about the way that I do things differently than maybe you do. And maybe what I'm doing will work for you partly, but you need to see other things. So I want to help use the social capital that we have here, because some of you guys could put together three or four videos and stick it up, but you don't want to do it all the time. You don't want to build it up to be anything, but you're willing to share what you've done 
And if you put that up, like 30 people are going to see it. But if we do it as a project together, thousands of people will see it and thousands of people will learn from it. And I am going to show you, that's next on my list, everything we're going to do at our homestead. Um, I was going to paint the greenhouse so I could finally show you what the greenhouse looks because I want it to be finished when I do that uh, for you guys. But then it like rained for two straight days, and it's still raining outside right now. We're getting like another four inches of rain over two days or something crazy like that. I had to forge streams coming down out of the uh, out of the uh, the homestead today uh, where water was just running across the road like a river. So, But I'm going to show you everything that we're doing in our homestead. We're going to do a lot more videos. Uh, you guys have already seen some of the work I've done with a videographer. I don't know if that's going to keep going or not. I haven't heard from them in the last week, uh, but one way or another, if I have to do the video myself, we're going to really, now that I have more projects ongoing and engaging, I'm going to have more to show you. I even shot a little bit with the iPhone today on the way out the door uh, with the swale and how it was working, and I'll get that up for you later today, so I'm going to show you everything. And then this is the big one, and this is what I need your help with today. I want to do something totally awesome for episode 1000, and if you say, Jack, what is it? I don't know yet. I don't know yet. I'd like to know by episode 900, though. I'd like to have it pinned down because it's going to be something you guys are involved with. So we need to start thinking about that now so we can start building up to it. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just another call-in show where you call in and talk about what you've been doing. I think there's some way we can do more than that. Maybe what we could do, here's an idea. What if you guys, remember you guys sent me pictures for The Revolution Is You? What if we set up a system, and this would have to not be with the 800 line. I'd have to have some way to manage this, but I could figure it out. Where you send me one or two pictures, and you make a recording about what you're doing. And instead of just being a podcast, we do a YouTube video with a picture slideshow, the person talking, a couple pictures of what they've done, something like that. Uh, maybe I could get some help from some, somebody in the audience to organize that and put it together, uh, keep like a running thing. That's one idea. If you guys have a better idea, please let me know. But I, I wanted to take today, and I just wanted to pause and kind of rewind a little bit, so to speak, use another outdated term. Have you ever re rewound anything lately? You use the rewind function on your DVR, but you're not really winding anything. Do a little bit of a proverbial rewind today, a little bit of a backup. Talk to you about where the show's come from, where it's going, the things that we're doing to make it even better. Uh, the mistakes we've made, the things that we're going you know, to do to correct those mistakes. Um, again, today I feel like this was a shareholders meeting. And every single listener is a shareholder in the Survival Podcast. And today your CEO has come out and given you your forward-looking statements. Uh, the things that we're concerned about, the things that we're working for, the reason we're doing these things, and a bit of history lesson on how we got here and where we came from and the fact that none of those things have been forgotten. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's the price we pay, I guess, we 